Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker, your host, as we work our way through the sermons preached by that gifted Victorian pastor, preacher, and evangelist. Today we come to the very end of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 13, with the last sermon in that particular selection, Sermon 787. The title is A Song, A Solace, A Sermon, and A Summons, and the text is Psalm 136. This week we're actually reading from the very end of 13 into Volume 14, from 787 to 793, but this is our featured sermon for this week. The sermon itself is taken from the refrain of Psalm 136, for his mercy endures forever. Spurgeon uh, launches into this sermon, as he occasionally does, and he's doing so on the last Sunday of the year, It was preached on December the 29th of 1867 uh, as a way of prompting thanksgiving and praise to the God of mercy over the course of the previous calendar year. He says we want to acknowledge that God's mercy has been equal to its promise, his promise that God has not failed to fulfil his gracious word. Now, as is again sometimes the case, Spurgeon doesn't particularly... um, outline his sermon in this case. He doesn't give us that uh, skeleton outline that he sometimes does right at the front end, uh, but he does work through, and that the title tells us what he's working through, that very phrase as a song, a solace or comfort, as a sermon, and a summons. And it's almost a way of getting four sermons into one sermon, which he only labels a sermon once. Uh, He takes the phrase, first of all, then, as a song of praise, then as a comfort with regard to the past and the present and the future. Then he gives you a sermon with three points, which uh, he obviously could have developed if he'd wanted to. And then finally, he closes using the text as a summons to come to a merciful God. Now, it does show us uh, an inventive way of handling a text of Scripture. He's faithful to the meaning, certainly, but he turns it, as so often he does, in these various ways. So he says, let's begin by regarding the text as a song, in accordance with its original intention. It was a song for all singers, he says, for it was the refrain of each verse, the chorus to be taken up by the whole assembled multitude. He supposes this antiphonal arrangement where uh, the practised singers use the Uh, the beginning phrase, and then the entire multitude chant the chorus, for his mercy endureth forever. And he says then that it's something that we're all involved in. It's a, a universal song of praise. Let us bless God for the eyes with which we behold the sun, for the health and strength to walk abroad in the sunlight. Let us praise him for the mercies which are new every morning, for the bread we eat, for the raiment which clothes us, for houses which give us shelter. Let us bless him that we are not deprived of our reason or stretched upon the bed of languishing. Let us praise him that we are not cast out among the hopeless or confined amongst the guilty. Let us thank him for liberty, for friends, for family associations and comforts. Let us praise him, in fact, for everything which we receive from his bounteous hand, for we deserve little and yet are most plenteously endowed. His mercy endureth forever. Every morning's light proclaims it, 
The beams of every moon declare it. Every breath of air, every heaving of the lungs, every beating of the pulse are fresh witnesses that his mercy endureth forever. But, says Spurgeon, this particular song has a sweet and loud note reserved for those who sing of redeeming love. So his first point then is that there's, uh, as a song, there's a general and universal declaration of God's mercy, but God's redeeming acts towards his chosen are forever the favourite themes of praise. Child of God, he asks, can you be silent? Shall there be one dumb soul here this morning? Awake, Awake, you heritors of glory, and lead your captivity captive as you cry with David, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So there's now an emphasis on redeeming love. And now the experienced believer is invited to join in the psalm. He says that there are some among us whose voices are deep, who can take the bass parts of the tune. So the educated saint, uh, I think he means they're educated in the sense of well-experienced, who's been for years in the ways of the Lord, can throw a force and a weight into the song which no other can contribute. If you have known many mercies of God, then you have every reason to declare that his mercy endures forever. And then he emphasises again that the peculiar point, the distinctive point brought out in the chorus is the enduring character of divine mercy. And there he begins to, to turn that. So you've got almost this study within a study, a song of mercy, yes. But what is it particularly about this mercy that draws our attention? It's its enduring character, that it is continual through all ages. And it's the same today, says Spurgeon. God has not quenched the lamp of his goodness. The river of his mercy flows deep and broad as aforetime. And then he says that mercy continues in its fullness. And as he's saying these things, some of his imagination begins to bubble up. We make great drafts upon the mercy of God, but we do not diminish it. There are fears that we shall one day exhaust those great storehouses in which the earth's best fuel is laid up. A bit of uh, environmental comment there from Spurgeon. This may be probable. It's certainly possible. A few hundred years will make a heavy demand upon our mineral treasuries. But quarry as you will in the mines of God's blessing, neither you nor your children nor your children's children shall complain of a deficiency. Also, God's patience abounds. This infinite long-suffering of God. The sins of men are all before him. You and I can readily put up with offences which do not touch us in the quick or actually under our own eye, but the sinner's sin is perpetrated before the very countenance of Jehovah. And yet here is mercy, God holding back his wrath and his judgments. Again, remember that the insults against heaven are constantly repeated, not just in front of God, but over and over again before his eye. And then that God is showing his patience with millions, perhaps a thousand millions at this moment of unregenerate men upon the face of the earth. Spurgeon here is is wanting to impress upon us why we should be singing of God's unending, enduring mercy how he has shown it to his people in particular, how he has distinguished himself as the God of loving kindness, of patient waiting. He says too that 
Uh, the endurance of divine graces is faintly pictured. Again, he's using his imagination. He, he's got before his eyes earlier the goodness of God conquering the sin of many all along the ages. Now he uh, faintly pictures the endurance of divine grace by imagining a shipwreck at sea and a rocket has been used to fire a rope out which is attached to the vessel. And uh, men are being drawn back in. But the great question is, will this rope be able to sustain the weight of the man and to save him? That's never a question with the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, he says. You never have to ask, will this mercy sustain? Will this Christ be able to save? The salvation of God, he says, brings every soul to shore that hangs on it. And when the world is gone to wreck, free grace will bring all who trust it to the eternal shore. Should the biggest sinner out of hell hang upon that rope of mercy, it will bear him up and bring him safe to land. The the potency, the power of God's mercy is also unchangeable. Again, you see how he's working his way through this. The, the character of mercy, it endures. It continues through all ages. It continues in its fullness. God's patience abounds. He does it with millions, even those who are uh, disobeying him and rebelling against him time after time. Yes, God's powerful mercy never changes, always endures. No possibility, he says, that a child of God should be cast into a difficulty out of which the stretched out arm of Jehovah cannot bring him. This then is the reason for the song of his mercy endures forever. And you can almost feel here the, the preacher's pressure. He's trying to pack so much into the, uh, the few minutes that he has available for this sermon. And so he turns it now this other way. We've had the song, now the solace. We have many troubles and we need comfort. God is willing that we should be comforted, for he says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, and has given us the Holy Spirit to be the comforter. And this declaration, this repeated uh, element of this psalm, that God's mercy endures forever, is a solace or a comfort to us with regard to the past. The year is all but gone, he says, but haven't we found up till now that his mercy has endured forever? If the stories of all could be told who are sitting here, I suppose a great roll of lamentation would need to be written, and around every roll we could bind the silken cord of mercy. They'd sung a hymn before the sermon. He says, it brought me to tears to hear you sing. He his chosen race did bless in the wasteful wilderness, for his mercy a endures ever faithful ever sure. It's a wasteful wilderness to us, yes, but he has blessed us. He has made it to blossom like the rose, where we expected nothing but weariness and barrenness. But he says, if you look particularly back at the year, how many sins of omission and commission, that is the things that you've left out that you should have done and the things that you've done that you ought not to have done. I shall not invite you, he says, to any lengthened confessions this morning, but which of us would not blush scarlet if his sins could not be could but be known? Beloved, acknowledge them now into the ear of your God, and then remember that mercy covers all. You don't need to be looking back a whole year. You could be listening to this at any point. Look back an hour. Look back a day or a week or a month. Think about how much mercy God has shown in the face of your sins. It's a consolation for the past and it's a consolation for the present. 
Thank God, he says, our acceptance is not injured by what may be a depressed state of mind. Whether we're depressed or exalted, whether enjoying communion or not, we still stand in the Beloved, all fair and glorious, in the sight of him whose mercy endures forever. Our standing is fixed. And then with regard to the future, he says, ah, oh, we're poor fuels, fools when we begin to deal with the future. He says, I can conceive some who feel their infirmities creeping over them. So now he's beginning to paint these pastoral pictures of of the different circumstances that the future may hold, which are causing trouble to God's people. They're trembling with the foreboding. What shall I do when I come to extreme old age? My friends are gone, none who are likely to maintain me. When these fingers cannot perform their daily work, when my brow is wrinkled and I can scarcely totter to my toil, what shall I do? Well, he says, God's mercy endures forever. It never stops, not at 70. It doesn't pause, not at 80. It will bear you safely over 90 if your pilgrimage be so far prolonged. Trust in the Lord and be not afraid, you whose days of weakness are coming, for God will not fail you nor forsake you. Then he thinks about the prospect of the storms of life, which are not few. And he reminds us that uh, though we might uh, seem to be in a mere cockle shell in the midst of huge Atlantic waves, yet nevertheless the Lord will uphold us because his mercy endures forever. Some may be expecting to travel a long way away, what Spurgeon calls far removes, uh, going to another country, a considerable number emigrating, he says, from year to year talks about friends uh, going further and further apart. You may be out at sea, he says, or in Australia, but the communication of prayer is always open between your soul and God. And if you were commanded to ride on the wings of the morning to the uttermost parts of the sea, or if for a while you had to make your bed in the abyss, if you were his child, still you would be able to reach his heart. He uses the, the illustration of the telegraph, which would have been cutting-edge technology in that time. And we might say, well, we have our uh, mobile telephones, we have our apps, we have whatever else we might use. Uh, We cut across vast distances uh, with barely a pause, uh, barely a delay in that communication. But our systems can fail, our power can go down, our batteries can uh, discharge, but neither distance nor time nor eternity itself should divide an heir of heaven from the mercy of God, which endures forever. Then someone else says, Well, I am not looking forward to that, for I have no doubt I shall lay my bones among my brothers. But I have lost many friends, and many others are pining and are likely to be taken from me. Yes, says Spurgeon, but it's a comfort to know that we sorrow not as those who are without hope. Some of us will die, He says, the young may die, the old must. Some of us must tread the dark valley this year. But again, the mercy of God endures forever. So your song was a song of praise concerning this enduring mercy of the Lord. Your solace, your comfort, your consolation with regard to the past. Your sins are covered with regard to the present. You're accepted in Christ. With regard to the future, whatever may come upon you, you may be confident that the mercy of the Lord shall endure in all its fullness, in all its patience, in all its potency. 
I wish, he says, we had time to use the text more fully in that light, but we have not. At which point you might respond, if you haven't tried to preach four sermons in one, you might have had a better chance. But, he says, I come now in the third place and with much brevity to use the text as a sermon. And here's classic Spurgeon, I've got a sermon with three headings within a sermon with four headings. His mercy endures forever, he says. First point, then let our mercy endure. Have you during this year or at any time previously offended another or been offended so that there is any ill will in your mind between you and anyone? Then may I ask you, as this is a most fitting day at the close of the year, to end it at once? Even if we feel we have been grossly mistreated, grossly insulted, yet now let the token of reconciliation be given by every one of us. Recollect, you Christians must do it, or you are not Christians. You are nothing better than deceitful hypocrites if you harbour in your minds a single unforgiving thought. So he says the, the forgiven man must be a forgiving man. And his sermon's first point is that if you've received mercy, then you should demonstrate mercy. The second heading of his sermon within a sermon is this that if God's mercy endures forever, then let us learn the duty of hoping for everybody. You've got no right to look at the the poor fallen girl, the prostitute in the street, and say, oh, it's no use looking after those outcasts, they always turn out badly before long. God's mercy endures forever, and if you ever had any of it, you wouldn't talk in that way. You've got no right to say of the drunken man, who's been reclaimed three or four times but has gone back, it's no use trying any more with him. No, brothers, God's mercy endures forever. Would you be more severe than your maker? He bears with sinners. Surely we may. Especially this ought to be so with our relatives and children. A mother's love must never burn out, and a father's patience never expire. Hope for the most hopeless. Till they're in hell, pray for them. Till they're in their graves, hope for them. Till they die, labour to bring them to Christ. God's mercy ever endures. Let our tenderness endure. Such a helpful uh, reminder. Really, this this little sermon within a sermon, it's, it's three applications, isn't it? So the third place then, if God's mercy endures forever, see the duty of hoping for yourself. Don't just look at your your neighbours, even at their neediest, and say, yes, God might help them. Look to your own soul. If you've been ever so guilty, do not say there is no hope. God's mercy endures forever. Away with that whisper of Satan, too late. It is not too late. So long as you desire Christ, it's not too late for him to receive you. One day, yes, but even now, it is not too late for repentance and faith to be accepted. Despair is sin, says Spurgeon. Hope is the duty of man with regard to God. I pray you, cast not yourself away. Till God has cast you into hell, have hope and come to Christ. So outside of hell, while there is while there is life, there's hope, he might have said. So let your mercy endure. Go on showing mercy to others. Hope that mercy may be shown to any, and do not dismiss or despair of any. And do not despair of yourself. There is yet mercy with God for every repenting sinner. And that brings him then in the fourth and the last place, and he's getting briefer and briefer as he works his way through, that this text is also a summons, and that in two directions. 
first of all, a most loving and tender summons to the wandering child to return to his father, to the backsliding professor to approach his God, to the chief of sinners to humble himself before the mercy seat. There is mercy. Seek it. If God's mercy endures forever, if it's so potent, if it's so patient, if it is held out so readily, if so many are able to sing of it in the way that the psalm requires us and enables us to do, then why would we not come to that Prince Emmanuel who has hung out the white flag upon Mount Gracious? It is still flying, says Spurgeon. So surrender, surrender today. Fight no more against yourself and your eternal interests. Christ calls you to himself to bow the knee to him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the saviour of sinners like us. He uses an illustration about uh, a Baptist minister, a great Baptist theologian of a previous generation, Andrew Fuller, once preaching in Scotland, the crowded place, the, the numbers thronging outside, and the worst woman in the town seeing the crowd thought she would push into the kirk to listen to the English minister who was preaching from the text, Spurgeon's favourite, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Ah, she said, I have gone far, but I have not gone over the ends of the earth at any rate, and if God says, Look and be saved, all the ends of the earth, he must mean me. And she did look, and became afterwards an honourable woman in that parish, converted by the grace of God. And as Spurgeon's year closes, he pleads the same text with his hearers, Look unto Christ, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It's a gentle summons. It's a truly enticing summons. It is a, a merciful, gracious, loving invitation to come to the merciful God, the Heavenly Father, and to live. But it doesn't just go to the unbelievers. Remember, Spurgeon has already told us at the beginning that this song is sung loudest and clearest by those who have tasted of God's redeeming love. The summons is meant for you too, believer, he says. His mercy endures forever. Therefore let your love to souls continue. Let your labour for conversions abide. Let your generosity to God's cause abound. Let your endeavours to extend the kingdom of Christ endure for evermore. At this season, let me say, enlarge your exertions. If you've done much, do more. If you've done little, be ashamed and begin afresh. If God's mercy continue forever, do not let us talk about resting and taking things easy. Nay, time is very precious. Every hour has six wings like a cherub and flies like the lightning's flash. Let us live and work while we may, for the night comes when no man can work. You may, as we've said, not be at the end of a year, but looking back, looking around, looking ahead, can we not all say that God's mercy has endured, is enduring, and with hope will and must endure, and that therefore it is right for us not only to revel in that mercy ourselves, but to extend it to all those who are in need of it. I hope that even that brief meditation has been an encouragement to our hearts as we've considered the enduring mercy of the Lord. We see the enthusiasm, the earnestness, the uh, intensity of the preacher, that uh, appetite to pack in all that he can, that 
uh, almost racing to keep ahead of time as his sermon reaches its conclusion. All of it, though, all of it intended to communicate, to adorn, to declare that wonderful divine mercy that is unfading and unfailing. I trust it has been a blessing to you as it has been to my own soul and I hope you'll join us again next week. We're right into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 14. Uh, We'll be reading Sermons 794 to 800 and our featured sermon next week will be 798, which is Special Protracted Prayer, Special uh, Drawn Out Seasons of Prayer. Do join us on that occasion and we hope that you'll, uh, if you've enjoyed today or any of the other podcasts, you'll perhaps take a moment to uh, give us a like or leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Uh, It does make a difference. You can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts if you want to sign up for our regular newsletter or you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in again on another occasion. God bless.